0: Well, good morning, everyone. If you uh, have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. We are continuing our sermon series on the book of Hebrews. So if you're out of town or um, just coming back or if you're new to the church, as Chris mentioned, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, We've been working through the book of Hebrews uh, slowly and methodically and This morning we're going to cover four verses, uh, verses 7 through 10. Um, You may know that Hebrews um, in some ways was a sermon that was written or preached, uh, but written for Christians coming out of Judaism. Uh, Throughout this book, the writer is showing how Jesus is better, right? A better prophet, a better priest, a better king, a better savior than all those who came before As a prophet, Jesus didn't just speak for God, he spoke as God. As a priest, he didn't just mediate for God, he mediated as God. As a king, he didn't just rule for God, he ruled as God. Jesus is better because he is God. He is not another savior to look to, he is the savior to trust in. And unfortunately, these early Christians were slow to make those connections. Coming out of Judaism, Jesus didn't really fit many of the categories they had for their Savior, for their Messiah. He said and did things that seemed incongruous with what they had been taught by their religious leaders. And because of that, their spiritual growth had been stunted. They had fallen behind and were in danger of falling away or falling back into Judaism. And I think sometimes we're slow to make these connections as well. And not just making these connections, but seeing the implications of these connections, of seeing how they impact not just our knowledge of who God is and who Jesus is, but our belief and our trust in Him. In the last two weeks, we've seen that Jesus was a better high priest and that He was sympathetic to our weaknesses. He doesn't just imagine how difficult our weaknesses are. He knows how difficult our weaknesses are. He knows because he himself suffered the weaknesses, the temptations, the trials that we encounter. Yet he suffered all these weaknesses without ever being led into sin. How comforting to know that Jesus Christ, our high priest, understands your weaknesses And mine, even more so that he has done something about them. Our text this morning takes us deeper into the nature of his priestly work on earth. It pulls back the veil to help us see how Jesus is the priest that we so deeply need. He's the one we deeply need because he didn't just make the perfect sacrifice for us, he became the perfect sacrifice. For us, He did for us what we could not do ourselves. And because Jesus has fulfilled the role of high priest perfectly, we can trust him with all of our life, especially in our ongoing struggle with life's weaknesses. So let's read now verses 7 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 5. This is God's word. In the days of his flesh... Oh God, we look to you to instruct us this morning, for this is your word. Lord, it is your precious word. It is your sufficient word. It is a necessary word for us, Lord, and sometimes we don't even know how necessary it is. And so would you, by your Holy Spirit, do that work of inspiring and illuminating our minds and hearts this day, that we would see and revel in the fact that Jesus is our High priest, the one that we so deeply need. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Earlier this year, I was rereading the book of Leviticus. And in it, Moses does a deep dive into the covenant relationship God had formalized with his people at Mount Sinai. And he shows, of course, that while Israel is sinful, and certainly Exodus gave us plenty of examples before that, God has provided a way to deal with sin so that he can dwell in the midst of his people. And the prescribed way God dealt with sin was the sacrificial system. And that system was administered by priests from the tribe of Levi. Now, as I read through the first couple of chapters, two thoughts hit me. The first thought was that priest had a bloody job. A lot of their time was spent carving up sacrifices, much like a butcher carves up meat. The instructions for preparing each animal were precise and had to be followed perfectly. So were the instructions for the priests to follow in preparing themselves to offer these sacrifices. It was not an easy job. It was, in fact, a costly job. And the second thought I had was that the Israelites experienced firsthand the cost of their sin. When they came to the tabernacle to make sacrifices for their sin, they had to bring one of their animals to sacrifice. And not just any animal, not the runt of the litter, but the one that had no blemishes, no imperfections. And then that animal was sacrificed on behalf of that owner. And it was that owner's sins and guilt that were transferred to that animal through the laying on of hands. It was a front row seat to the awful consequences of human sin, as well as the gracious means of divine forgiveness. It was not an easy sacrifice. In fact, it was a costly sacrifice. And while these sacrifices dealt with sin, they did not deal ultimately with sin. They had to continually be made year in and year out. And even so, each of these sacrifices and rituals and offerings pointed beyond themselves. They pointed to Jesus for their ultimate fulfillment, His priesthood, His sacrificial atonement. And we know that because Hebrews makes those connections for us. They show us that he is a better priest. But in what ways? Well, I think there's at least three that I can see in these four verses before us. The first is that Jesus prayed for you. Now, there's no greater encouragement knowing that someone is praying for you. Whether it's an illness, a job opportunity, A relationship or a struggle, to know that someone is going before God the Father in prayer for you is deeply comforting and meaningful. And our text tells us that Jesus, the great high priest, has prayed for you to the Father. Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So while Jesus was on earth ministering to and with his disciples, he offered up prayers and supplications. Now in saying that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, the writer intends to make a connection. He is connecting the offering up of prayers in verse 7 to the high priestly role of offering sacrifices mentioned in verse 1. Jesus' prayers were very much a sacrificial offering for the benefit of the people. They rose before the Lord much like the smoke from a burnt offering would have done. Furthermore, the writer says that Jesus' prayers and supplications were often accompanied with loud cries and tears. And we can think of instances in his Passion Week where Jesus' prayers were filled with tears and agony, we certainly think of the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22. We read that our faithful high priest prayed with blood, sweat, and tears. He was in agony as he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remove the cup of wrath that I must drink. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What a bold prayer, yet what a resolute prayer. Take this burden from me, but only if it suits your purpose. If it doesn't, then help me drink it. And Jesus was heard, which is to say he was accepted by God because of his reverence and his love for his Father. Truly, Jesus loved his Father's will and your life and mine more than he loved his very own life. But the writer is not limiting these prayers and supplications to just the Passion Week. In reality, these prayers span the totality of his high priestly service. We see many examples throughout the Gospels, but two I want to mention. John 17 is one such powerful example. This passage is particularly fitting as the editors of the Bible have referred to John 17 as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And here Jesus prays, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them, for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Sanctify them in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus was interceding. He was pleading with the Father that his disciples would know the truth and would be sanctified, that is to say, set apart in that truth, and not just so they could have the right theology, but so that they would have the right unity, so that they may be one even as Jesus and the Father are one. But notice he also included you and me in that prayer. He said, I don't ask for these disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, and that's you and me. He is praying that you and I would know and be sanctified by the truth. That we may have the right unity, as he prayed the disciples would have, the same unity that Jesus and the Father enjoy. Just one other example briefly of Jesus' high priestly prayer is the prayer Jesus offered up for Peter in Luke 22. We read in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have what? I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now here Jesus intercedes for Peter in ways that Peter didn't even know he needed. He prays that Peter's faith may not fail in light of Satan's attacks. Now, it would be easy to think that Jesus' prayer wasn't answered because Peter denied Jesus. But Jesus' prayer wasn't that Peter wouldn't deny him, but rather that Peter's faith wouldn't fail. Yes, Peter's courage had failed him, but the gospel did not. Through repentance, Peter's faith in Christ was renewed and strengthened, and his renewed faith did in fact strengthen his brother's in the faith as well. Friend, our great high priest, Jesus Christ, prays for you because he knows what you are facing. He has faced it too. He knows the wilderness and the temptations that we face. And he prays with loud cries and tears, not because God is a softy and will do whatever Jesus asked him to do with tears, He prays with loud cries or tears because of his love for you and me. His tears are not meant to get his way, but for the Father to have his way in us. He cares deeply for you and for all the aspects of your life. His prayers and supplications are his proof of his love for you. Because of that, you can trust him. You can trust him with your whole life. And not just the things that you can't control in your life, but the things that you can. His grace is sufficient. It is more than enough to cover your weakness. Just ask Peter. Just ask Paul. Just ask Jesus. And as our better high priest, Jesus Jesus doesn't just pray for you. But secondly, he obeyed for you. The fact that there needed to be a sacrificial system in the first place spoke to the reality of sin. It revealed man's inability in his fallen state to obey God, to relate to Him as He was created to do. And yet the sacrificial system also speaks to another reality, the reality that God wanted to be in relationship with His people, so much so that He made a way for them to be right with Him Animals were sacrificed, and the blood of those animals atoned for sin. Yet the sacrificial system called for something more perfect and more permanent. They pointed to the need for a sinless priest, one who perfectly obeyed to offer a sinless sacrifice. And here we have that in Jesus. Look down in verse 8. There we read, Although he was a son, He learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, in what sense did Jesus the Son learn obedience? In what sense did he need to learn obedience? Was it that he needed understanding of what God required of him? Was it that he needed guidance in learning how and where and when to obey the Father? Not at all. For the law of God was written on his heart. He could no more forget God or his law than he would his own name. No, I believe Jesus learned obedience in the sense that he experienced it in practice. It became known more fully to him in suffering. Now, I can tell you all the ingredients that go into a chocolate cake, but that won't help you know what it tastes like. The only way that we know what chocolate cake tastes like is what? is eating chocolate cake. And the way Jesus learned obedience was experiencing it through his suffering. We hear echoes of that learned obedience from the Apostle Paul. In Philippians 2, he describes the humility of Jesus in his incarnation and what he gave up as our high priest. And in verse 8, we read, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus has learned obedience through suffering. His obedience carried him to the brink of death and eventually into death itself. And again, it's tempting to limit Jesus' suffering to just his passion week. but, But we shouldn't do that. Even in the very beginning of his ministry, when he was fasting in the wilderness those 40 days, enduring the temptations of the devil, we see suffering as a companion to Jesus. We see it in the way his family and his friends doubted him. We see it in the way that the religious leaders hounded him. He endured suffering all throughout his life. But it was, in fact, a passion week when that suffering came to a head. It was the suffering-induced obedience that led Jesus to the place of death, to the place where atonement must be made. And Jesus did what you and I could never do. He perfectly obeyed. He neither was born into sin, as you and I are, nor did He fall into sin, as you and I do. He remained faithful in His obedience to His Father. And because He did that, He alone was qualified to undo Adam's curse. For we read in Romans 5, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads uh, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Paul says that it was Adam's disobedience that brought sin into our lives, yet it was Jesus' obedience that brought righteousness into our lives. Jesus obeyed for Adam and his helpless race, which means he obeyed for you and for me. Why was Jesus a better high priest? Because he prayed for you, because because he obeyed for you, and then finally because he died and rose for you. I mentioned Leviticus earlier in the sermon. It's there that we read about the particulars for the day of atonement. This holiest of holy days was set apart for the high priest to make atonement for the sins of the entire congregation for the whole year. On this day, the high priest and only the high priest would enter into the holy of holies. And that's, of course, the part of the tabernacle where the presence of the Lord dwelt. And it was off limits to everyone except the high priest. And it was off limits to him except for the one day, the day of atonement. According to Leviticus 16, the high priest was to take two goats. The first goat would be sacrificed upon the altar and its blood sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. On the other goat, he would confess the sins of Israel and then send it into the wilderness alive as the scapegoat. The scapegoat symbolized the transfer of guilt from the congregation and its complete removal from their midst never to return. In this way, atonement was made for the whole nation of Israel in one day. And yet, as we have seen, all of this was but a shadow of future good things. It was pointing to the fulfillment of the messianic promises given by God, which brings us back to Hebrews five. For we read in verses 9 and 10, And being made perfect, he, that is Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. As our sympathetic high priest, who knew weakness but not sin, As our suffering high priest who learned obedience through suffering, Jesus was made perfect. He was qualified to make atonement for the sins of the people, not just as the high priest who offered up the sacrifice, but as the sacrifice itself being offered up. As the writer of Hebrews will point out later, like the first goat that was burned outside the camp, Jesus died outside the walls of Jerusalem for us. His blood was spilled and thus atoned for sin. And like the second goat, goat, the scapegoat, Jesus' substitutionary atonement removed the guilt of sin from our midst. He fulfilled what was written in Psalm 103 For as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. But, friends, how do we know whether God accepted Christ's sacrifice? How do we know if it was enough? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. That's how we know. The resurrection is proof that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ had not been raised, our faith would have been futile, for we would still be what? We would still be in our sins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, for as in Adam, all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive forever. No more sacrifices. No more wondering. No more waiting. No more fearing the end. But notice who this salvation is for. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There are two important distinctions to make about this qualification. The first and hopefully the most obvious distinction is that our obedience is not the source of our salvation. Our obedience does not trigger God's rescue plan of salvation. It is precisely because we couldn't obey that we needed to be saved. That's the heart of religion, isn't it? I obey. Therefore, God accepts me. Therefore, God approves of me. But the gospel is the opposite. It says Christ himself is the source of your eternal salvation. Therefore, you obey him. It is our obedience to Christ that shows, that reveals we are trusting in his salvation and not the other way around. To say it another way, we love because he first loved us. The second distinction is also important in that Jesus' salvation isn't universal. Jesus doesn't save everybody. Jesus said many times that he came only for the sick and not the well. He came for those who need him and know their need of him. This is the nature of Christ's atonement. It is limited While his atoning sacrifice was absolutely sufficient to cover over all of humanity's sin, it is only effectual for those who have trusted in his work. And so my question to you this morning is, are you trusting in the eternal salvation Jesus has purchased for you with his life? Or are you trusting in yourself? Are you looking to Jesus, your great high priest, who prayed for you, who obeyed for you, who died and rose for you? Or are you looking to your own obedience? If you're looking to Christ as your faithful high priest, there is an important implication for you and I to draw upon. We find it in 1 Peter 2. There he makes an important connection, another connection that would have certainly challenged these Hebrew Christians. It's a connection that Peter makes with something God said through Moses in Exodus 19. There God said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. What did God mean by this? In what sense would the people be a kingdom of priests? Would they be performing the sacrifices that Aaron and his sons did? No, of course not. But they would mediate the presence and blessings of the Lord to the nations around them. They would intercede to God for others. And in that sense, they would be fulfilling what God had promised Abraham back in Genesis 12 that his offspring would be a blessing to the nations. So, how does Peter understand this connection to God's people? Well, because Christ has fulfilled God's covenant promises, he says to both Jew and Gentile Christians alike in his congregations, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. Who is this royal priesthood? Who is this holy nation? It is the church of Jesus Christ, it is his body on earth. And if Jesus is your source of eternal salvation, you are part of his family, the church. And he means for us to live out our priesthood in local churches where we can do what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you and me out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is mediating the blessing of the Lord to the nations. And where do we do that? Well, we certainly do that for each other here in worship. But we also do that as we are sent out in mission together. For God has established Rivermont Evangelical Presbyterian Church as a kingdom of priests. To what end? To proclaim Jesus as the one who has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of this world, and into his glorious light, the kingdom of heaven. Before you and I were not God's people, but now we are. Before we needed mercy in the worst way and because of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, we have received mercy. He truly is the priest that we need. May we be the priesthood our neighborhood needs as well. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who has fulfilled all of your covenant relationship that we could not ever hope to fulfill. Lord, in his obedience and in his death and resurrection, he has made us right before you. And he has called us to be a kingdom of priests to our neighborhood, to our city, to our state, our country, and even our world. And how, how we thank you for those who have taken up that role. And we pray that you would empower all of us to serve in that way, beginning even in our own neighborhood and beyond. Lord, we pray your blessing upon your word may it ever uh, impact and empower us to serve you. We pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.